Morning, everyone. Uh, the question before us is, where do you live? So I'll start off with, I live. Well, let's, I live if you're bringing cookies or treats or Starbucks at 18590 Carlton Avenue, Castro Valley, California. If at the end of this sermon you feel like egging or TPing someone, I'm staying at Drew's house for a while. <laughs> Just for a couple weeks until you forget all about what happened here today. Uh, I think it's a brilliant question. Uh, where do you live? And so I've been thinking about it this week, maybe you've been thinking about it this week, and I think just right below the surface are so many powerful questions for the church. I was thinking about where do I live, and I was thinking about where I live and how I got there, and why I chose to live there. So I began that conversation in my own head, thinking through, I have, by the grace of God and nothing else, the ability to choose where I live. That is a privilege, that is a power that we need to acknowledge that not everyone has in this world, amen? amen? But we do, for the most part, sitting of us in this room, we have the power and the ability to choose where we live. And so then I started thinking about how we choose where we live. How many of you have moved sometime in the last 10 to 15 years? I, I, I have moved also in the last 10 to 15 years, so. I'll walk us through some of my own movement in history. 15 years ago, roughly, oh shoot, I've forgotten my ages. I'm only 22, so 15 years ago I was seven. <laughs> um, a while ago, my, uh, my wife and I felt called, we were engaged in San Diego in uh, some urban leadership development work, and through a series of miracles, I learned so much about who I am and, and growth and all the powers that are at play when we think about injustice in our world. My wife and I felt called at that time and we had the ability to choose, but we felt called, so we chose to live in a neighborhood where the schools were ranked two out of 10. One of the things that we do oftentimes when we move, and let's be honest about this, is we as parents and family look at the school ratings and what the schools are like in the neighborhood that we're moving to, correct? I did the same when I moved here. We intentionally moved into a neighborhood to be with the people we were serving at the time. We sent our daughter, our first daughter, we have four kids now, which is way too many, by the way. And we just added a puppy. That was a real mistake. Different conversation, different day. We sent our daughter to Oak Park Elementary, where in a lot of ways it was a beautiful experience, but it was a hard one. The school was not resourced as well as other schools. The teachers were incredible. The staff was incredible. Our daughter had an incredible experience. She came home one day, and in the nature of cultural identity and the way that it's formed, she was the only kid of European descent at the school. So she came home one day and sat down and said, Dad, when do we celebrate my cultural heritage? I said, which cultural heritage do you speak of? She's like, well, I'm Vietnamese. I said, no, love. <laughs> she goes, no, I am. I absolutely am. Uh, Sophie is my friend at school, and she's the only one who's even close to my skin tone. 
I must be Vietnamese. I'm like, no love, no love. Led to a lot of great conversations. But the school struggled. So I started thinking about how we choose where we live. And did you know this? This is actual kind of, I looked up all the stuff on the Googles. And it is true that a child's success is based primarily on the zip code in which they are raised. That where you live, go this way. There we go. Yeah, what's going on here? We're on. Trying to go one slide. Down is forward. This is a good thing. Nope. Nope. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. You can applaud. The, the more you applaud, the better I feel about myself. So continue on. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you. Where you live, statistically proven, affects your physical health. If you live in a neighborhood that is under-resourced, your rate of heart disease goes up. Your rate of malnutrition goes up. Your rate of uh, low and chronic birth issues goes up. The list goes on and on and on. Where you live affects your mental health your physical health, and it is absolutely the greatest factor of success where you grow up. I thought to myself, oh man, where we live is a deep theological question and issue. If that's true, and it's true. Uh, there's a fantastic thing called Opportunity Atlas. You can go look it up later if you want to. Let me read this. This is about schools in particular. This is from, a, I found in my research, an excerpt from a teacher in Oakland. I think this will get to part of our issue. She wrote this. I'm a third generation teacher. As a white teacher with a master's degree coming from a middle class background teaching in this Oakland neighborhood, the narrative that I got fed about teaching here was, oh, education is the great equalizer, right? That's the narrative that we have as a society. If you work hard enough and you study in school, you can be successful. And then coming into my school, I'm like, oh well, that's a lie. I have kids who work incredibly hard and I have kids who have the academic potential to do incredible things, but they have to work 40 hours a week to help support their family. Even if my students were geniuses receiving a top-notch education, that doesn't change the fact that they live in a two-bedroom apartment with 12 other people, that they hear gunshots every night, that they have a parent in jail or in ICE detention, that they don't have food at home. If students' basic physical and emotional needs aren't met at home, how could they possibly succeed academically? We need a stronger social safety net. We need to eradicate or at least alleviate poverty to give students like my kids a chance of making it. I think we need to guarantee a right to good, stable housing. The pressures of gentrification are really huge for my students and their families. My kids aren't starting at the starting line. They're starting from 100 feet behind it. And the fact is that they make it to the finish line at all 
It's a testament to how incredible they are. My students are incredible in the resilience that they show. Family. Our neighborhoods are not equal, amen? They didn't get there by accident. How do we choose where we live? How do we decide? My family and I chose where the schools were better to give our children a chance to succeed. I've been wrestling with this question for two weeks. Where do we live? We live intentionally in a neighborhood in Castro Valley where our children had the best chance to succeed. And we know that that leaves behind other children. Didn't happen by accident. There's a beautiful thing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, our world, our neighborhood is segregated. What you're looking at is a map. You can find this. The University of Virginia did it originally. There's all kinds of maps that will indicate how we are still segregated today by culture, by ethnic identity, by race. There are predominantly black neighborhoods, predominantly Latino, Latina neighborhoods. We know this. Uh, we know where the schools struggle. And we know that we've chosen to avoid them, for the most part. I did. We know that it happened at the beginning by, and Berkeley has done some incredible work as a city to remedy the effects of redlining and housing discrimination, but we know it was intentional. It was literally a governmental policy to segregate our neighborhoods. If you need a book about it so you know it's not just me, read The Color of Law. And we suffer with these consequences today. We don't live in equal neighborhoods. Quick tangent. One of the major factors of this is that we view housing as a commodity, as an opportunity to build wealth and to build success. When I think theologically and maybe even practically on a human rights level, Elise says the UN, housing is a human right. And we live in a community where 9,000 people tonight in Alameda County will be without a house at all. And untold thousands more are living in an unstable environment or in an environment where we ourselves have chosen not to live. The majority of us. Well, we are a church. So let's talk for a minute about how God feels about that. Let's just say, you don't have to raise your hands, maybe in a silent nod or, or a physical nod. Do we think that this kind of unequal places of what we live in, the neighborhoods being unequal, the ability to thrive being equal, the presence of shalom being unequal, do we think this is the way God intended it? I think we would all agree no, correct? Amen? God doesn't want it this way. This isn't God's vision for that. Well, let's talk about God's vision for a second of our world. If you go back to the book of Exodus, which we've been in, there's so many beautiful pieces. I know the out, kind of out world outside of the faith community looks at the Old Testament as a horrific, violent kind of book in general. And those pieces exist. That is a very real thing. But within it, if you take the law code that God is God's forming a people through the Exodus experience, as God is forming a people that we are meant to live into and are part of this genealogy with, God is forming them with this law code that if you compare it against the law code of the day, which was called this Nag Hammadi, which was like this giant kind of cultural law code of every other living civilization. And God puts Exodus 
And our law code, compared to it, is the most incredibly economically graceful and beautiful thing. God knows that the human nature tends to separate itself into the haves and the have-nots. So stuck in Exodus are so many different places. And then in Leviticus, and then in Deuteronomy. I mean, have we heard of the idea of Jubilee? Well, the idea of Jubilee is that every 50 years, everybody gets their land back. Can you imagine that? Everybody in the community gets a piece of land. Everybody in the community gets a home. Everybody in the community gets a guaranteed income. God, that crazy socialist. I'll leave that one alone just for the minute. But God's vision in Exodus is so incredible because it creates a shalom for everybody to thrive. Every seven years, debt is canceled. Who here has debt? I do. Mm -hmm. Who would here would love their student debt canceled every seven years? Right? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Right? That's how God's economy was meant to work. And there's these beautiful phrases. 22. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat, what did, what? Do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Oh my goodness, Visa, are you listening? If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak might be the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear. That's just one verse. It's full of them. You're doing a whole series. We're doing a whole bunch of them. It's all over the place. But it's really here. And I want to talk about this. I've been lingering with this, the Lord's Prayer, a thing we say so many times, and, and kind of culturally and ritually. Let's, let's go through it a little bit together. And I want to center us right in the middle. Jesus is working with his disciples and he's teaching us how to pray. He's teaching you how to pray. He's teaching I how to pray. So what you get in this moment is what is on God's heart. The same God yesterday, today, and forever who wrote into Exodus what a beautiful kingdom should look like, who we agree doesn't think that our neighborhoods just down the street blocks should be unequal in terms of education and chance for success delivers this, this is how you should pray, my people. This then is how you should pray. Our Father, our God who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? Where? Here, here, when you read the entire narrative of the gospel, see, we have made a kind of a theological error. It's, not, it's an important part, but it's not nearly as important as we made it. We are convinced kind of in America that the most important thing we can do in the church world is get people into heaven. We have lots of conversations about how to get people into heaven and lots of disagreements and arguments about what qualifies someone to get into heaven or not. Jesus is not concerned about getting people into heaven nearly as much as he's concerned about getting heaven into you. Now, 
You can clap. I like it. It makes me feel good about myself. I'm fine with it. So let's, let's vision for a minute. I'm going to make sure I say it in about 20 minutes. Let's vision for a minute. Family, when we think about heaven, is the, <laughs> the education's hard to imagine, but do we envision a world in which heaven has different segregated neighborhoods that are better with more parks, with more stores, with more uh, beauty? Do we believe that neighborhoods in heaven are segregated and different? No! Do we believe that everybody has a chance to succeed in the same way in heaven? Yes! Does racism exist in heaven? No. Does hunger exist in heaven? No. Does homelessness exist in heaven? No. So what is Jesus asking us to do? He's asking us to bring heaven to earth. The work of the faith family is to figure out how we live at the intersection of earth and heaven. How we get heaven here. How we look up and we say, you know, that's not okay. How we create shalom everywhere. How we create justice everywhere. Jesus asks us to pray. Every time we stop and we fall and we fall to our knees in prayer, gosh, every time you do the Lord's Prayer from this moment forward, just really hear this. Our Father who art in heaven, our Creator God, holy is your name. You are the Ancient of Days. Your reign come now through me in this place, in where God has put me, in my workplace, in my home, in my neighborhood, family. Wealth and where you live is a neutral thing. You either have a chance to use it to bring more of God's heaven and joy and goodness and justice and rightness right where you live, or you can use it for yourself. It's neutral. It's not bad. It's also not good until you put it into action. And I can't describe for you right now what it looks like to think about the place where you live and how it can be used to live this out. That is really for you and the Holy Spirit to deal with. I can give you some thoughts. Your reign come, your will be done. Where? Here. Here. Gosh, the fun of the work of the church, the, the fun and the energy is to sit around and talk about in your Bible studies and in your elder meetings and in your staff meetings is how do we get to do that? What joy it is to do our work today to bring heaven to earth. What experience of that relationally? What justice of that? What work of that? Hey, folks, doesn't that sound fun? That's good stuff that we get a chance to leave the answer to our own prayer every time we say it. Where we live, where I live, where you live, I live at 18590 Carlton Avenue, unless you're going to TP my house. Right in the corner, I hope, and I pray of where the kingdom of God, the reign of God, intersects 
I hope my neighbors know, my neighborhood knows, my community knows, my city knows that my life is spent and our life is spent doing everything we can to bring God's goodness in heaven to earth. And I'm not worried about getting people into heaven right now. God will take care of that. I'm worried about getting God into people here, now. A few quick thoughts if you're asking the question, what do I do? And then I'll finish. What do I do to really live this out when it comes to housing and homelessness? One is we've got to acknowledge the power and the privilege that comes with where we live. Yes, you and your family and my family have worked hard. I didn't get a house handed down to me. I had to work for it. I had to save. But there's still incredible power and privilege in the way that that worked. That I can choose to live, period, in different neighborhoods, says something. 95% of our world does not get to choose. I need to articulate that and acknowledge that and say it out loud. Then I need to activate. I want to acknowledge and activate. I want to say, what am I going to do with this gift I've been given to steward of where I live? What am I going to do with it? Am I going to open up my home in different ways for different meetings and different gatherings? Am I going to open up my home? Am I going to put an ADU in the back and think of how to engage homeless housing in that regard? What am I going to do? How do I activate where I live? And the last one is, I think the role of the church that we have walked away from is to be a powerful voice of advocacy for justice between neighborhoods in our community. It cannot be okay with us. Our shalom depends on the entire community's shalom. You cannot have peace while someone else is suffering. You cannot have shalom at the expense of someone else's shalom. That is not kingdom work. Collectively, as a voice, we have to get engaged and advocate on behalf of those whose neighborhood is unequal to ours. And that is up for us, First Pres Berkeley, to figure out and dictate, how do we do that well as a community? How do we live into that? Where do I live? I live at 18590 Carlton Avenue, and prayerfully, hopefully, wonderfully spirit-led Lee, the corner of heaven and earth. And I hope you all join me right there. Amen? Amen. Holy Spirit, lead us. As we're going to say later in our gathering, the Lord's Prayer, help us to feel it differently. God, help us to be part of your will be done. And it is not your will to know that our neighborhoods and our schools and our communities are unequal in all of the shalom they provide. Help us to be activated and to advocate and to be in that space in ways we cannot comprehend at the moment. Holy Spirit, we pray your will be done here on earth 
as it is in heaven. Give us joy as we as a faith family engage around how do we do that. Bring all of your goodness to the places we live, the streets we live on. Praise things in your name. Amen.